Time for security now. Steve Gibson's here. The new Internet Explorer is out. How secure, how safe, how usable is it? Steve's got his review. Coming up next, Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 293, recorded March 23rd, 2011, IE9. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist Express. If you're in tech support, solve problems fast with the leader in remote support software. GoToAssist Express for a free 30-day trial. Visit gotoassist.com slash security. And by FreshBooks, the easy online invoicing service that gets you paid quickly and makes you look more professional. Get started with a free package today at freshbooks.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security, your privacy, everything you need to know about protecting yourself online. And in the process, uh, I think does a pretty darn good job of teaching all of us the fundamentals of computing technology. And that's thanks to this guy, Mr. Steve Gibson, who's been doing it for an awful long time now, starting with uh, a, the light pen he wrote for the Apple II computer. His many columns, uh, loved those columns in InfoWorld magazine. What was the name of that uh, column? It was Tech Talk. Tech Talk was the name of that. Yeah, you may remember. I, I originally that. called it Behind the Screens, oh, but like CompuServe had a trademark oh. on that name, and so we were told we had to change it. So I just said, "Well, Tech Talk." How long did you do that? That was uh, eight years. Wow, did, or maybe nine years. I learned I kind of, so much from that. That was a great column. It ended up, you know, I mean, uh, Dvorak was there with me at Infoworld, and uh, and Robert X. Cringely. Oh yeah, the and, original, not the not the current one. Right. There have been many of them. <laughs> I don't think the current Cringely is actually the same Cringely as, as was there in the early days. I don't, I don't know one it's way a character. Other. It's like Betty Crocker. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, well, I have to say, and I'll, I'll give you full credit, I, uh, there were a few people that early, because I started uh, got getting into computers late 70s, did start early on writing for, I wrote for Byte, a little wrote for InfoWorld, did reviews. But I was learning in the early 80s, and the way I learned was you, Dvorak, Jerry Pornell in Byte Magazine, yeah, Steve Ciarcia's uh, circuit seller in Byte Magazine. Yep. Uh, there was just a handful of columns, and I read them religiously. InfoWorld was weekly, which is great, so I read it every week. And that's how I learned. That's how I, you know, it was great. So I, I owe you, I don't think I've ever thanked you, <laughs> but I owe you a, a debt of gratitude. Well, um, as you said, it's all about fundamentals, and... Uh, I guess I, I view everything from that standpoint, from that from that foundation, and uh, so it gives me a a perspective that um, you know other people don't have. I who do haven't wonder, been doing it since they were four years old. I do wonder how kids today, because we were all you know personal computing was a new industry, so we were all kind of learning together, and there was this great <sighs> exciting time. 
It would just be overwhelming today, Leo. I mean, yeah. the, there's just, it's so big, you'd have to be looking at it thinking, where do I start? You know, like, what do I do? How right. do I make a difference? It, right. it would be daunting, I think. And there are no, I mean, you know, those magazines are long gone. There are no magazines anymore, really, to speak of. They're all very small. Dr. Dobbs Journal. Yes. That was another one of the good ones. Running light days. without overbite. <laughs> I read that right. religiously, cover to cover. That was a great magazine. Yeah. Um, and uh, nowadays, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of content on the web, but I don't know. It's mostly fan content, content about content, and less so about the inner workings. Even the non-tech and the other um, kind of geek sites are more about benchmarking and uh, and building a computer than about the fundamentals. So I'm glad we do this because I think this is one of the last few places where you could say, it, you know, we've got 293 episodes and you could go back and you could start at the beginning and learn as much as I learned from Steve's columns over the years. Uh, take you and I, and a little I think less probably, than eight years to read it. I think probably it sneaks up on people because we didn't start out by saying we're going to you know, tell you about the fundamentals because some people might have started to snore thinking, right. well, why does that matter? But you know, by sort of folding that stuff in, it's like, oh, I'm glad to know where this came from because, yeah. you know, it gives it some richness and some background. Well, you've done it as needed. So if you, uh, you know, we can't yeah. talk about uh, crypto unless you understand the fundamentals of crypto. So it's always exactly. been, yeah. Well, uh, today, what are we talking about? I think we need to cover IE9. Um, mm -hmm. I've spent uh, all my time, well, a lot of my time uh, when not playing with iPad 2, uh, which finally did come. Uh, a couple days ago, and, and I like it, Leo. It just, to me, I, I would agree with you. I can't see a reason, a compelling reason for someone with the first iPad to upgrade to the second, especially when the, where there's strong rumors about a third, which is probably no more than another year away, and it's really going to be the one we want. But to me, it, the, the second iPad just feels like a second-generation device. It feels substantially more polished and refined. I mean, you know, physically holding it, it just, and of course holding it is what you do a lot with a right. tablet, much right. more than, than a computer. And uh, it does have, seem to have a faster frame rate when you're dragging pages and, and, and doing the little animations that are sort of just part of making it a, a nice experience. So I like it a lot. Um, but I spent a lot of time with IE9, which was not easy for me because you can't install it on XP which is, as we know, the operating system I'm still proudly sitting in front of. Microsoft is thinking of you specifically, Steve. <laughs> They're trying to force you to move forward. Well, it's funny, too, because there had been a lot, there was a lot of press noise about IE9 and, of course, about Firefox 4, with the, actually recently the Firefox 4 people saying that they were outstripping the download rate for IE9, and IE9 was pretty... I mean, it was significant, too. It was several million copies of IE9 downloaded since its release. Well, On the other hand, no Microsoft one... Microsoft has hundreds of millions of users, you know. Yes, and nobody with XP. I mean, remember, there's still right. a huge XP base. It's not like I'm the only one left still using XP. I think and it's still the majority in many countries. I don't know about the yes. U.S., but... Yes, and so, you know, so none of those people are downloading IE9 because... You know, it won't. It just right. says, oh, I'm not compatible with your operating system. You think system. that that's so, a, a, a technical limitation or a uh, marketing issue? I would say both. They could have certainly made it compatible, as is IE8. Although IE9, as I'm sure Paul will have told you, uh, is, is in fact deeply integrated 
with Windows Explorer, you know, with the tray and the taskbar and the pin-ons and or pin-ins or ons or ups or I mean, I didn't bother spending much time with some of the frosting of IE9 because I, you know, I know that you and Paul and yeah. a lot of other people in the industry are going to do that. I'm looking more at privacy and security that's what, aspects. That's what we want from you, absolutely. Yep. Right. So, but I do think that the decision they made was to take advantage of some of the new UI features that were added in Vista and then carried ah, further in I Win see. 7. Um, and so it, it would have, you know, they could have probably made it work, but it wouldn't have had those things. And they probably just said, hey, it's time to, to give up on backward compatibility, which is surprising for them. Somebody, I love this. In the chat room, somebody said, why is Steve using XP? And he's getting a little schooling from one of our chatters, Fopo Gijo, he says, <laughs> because new is inherently the nemesis of security. We have trained them well. That's great. Yes. In fact, someone asked me, had I moved yet to Firefox 4? And I said, uh-uh. Right. No, that was like a couple of days ago. Let's let <laughs> it settle down a little bit. It's just too young. I, I installed it on my uh, MacBook Air so that I could sort of diddle with it over there on a, on a little island all by itself. But, and the other thing, too, is that, you know, it immediately, I don't have nearly the number of add-ons for Firefox 4 that I do have for, um, for Firefox 3, yeah. but it immediately said, oops, this is not compatible, and that's not compatible. In fact, no script doesn't even display the little, um, the little options down in, in the taskbar. In, um, oh, that's disappointing. Un yeah, although many people tweeted me and emailed me. I, hate, I don't even want to look at the mailbag next week for the <laughs> Q&A about, duh, Steve, uh, no script does have uh, button, um, know, um, uh, button add-ons. You just go to customize your, your toolbar, toolbar buttons. Remember I was talking about oh, yeah, how... Yeah, you wanted an on-off switch. Oh, yeah. that's Eric. Yeah. They're coming out my ears now. So... <laughs> Yeah. Well, I apologize for not knowing that myself. So you can, you can write that. to me. Don't don't it's berate. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. So thank you everybody who tweeted and who who wrote, and uh, I was immediately schooled, uh, <laughs> as as was our poor chat room person who said, uh, "Why doesn't Steve, you know, always run the latest and greatest?" It's like, well. I'll get there eventually. IE9, our subject. We also have some security updates, some security news, of yep. course. Uh, we wouldn't, wouldn't be a show if we didn't keep you up to date on the latest. I like that. We, that's something we added, I think, at, around show 100. For the first few hundred shows, we didn't uh, talk about security news so much because we wanted it to be a timeless show. But then we realized that uh, it's important. Yeah. It's important to know uh, the latest. So we, we'll bring you those updates in just a second. Though before we go any further, I would like to talk about our friends at Citrix who do a great product called GoToAssist Express, really aimed at the kind of people who listen to security now. The people, the experts, the geeks, the gurus, the IT support professionals that others go to, uh, whether professionally or just as friends, for help. If you are in the support game, the tools that you carry are important. They're not tools on your belt. Although we always knew when the IT department was coming down the hall at Tech TV because he used to wear a big keychain. You'd hear jingle, jingle, jingle as he came down. But it really, the tools that you carry may be on a CD or on the, on the web those are, or a USB key. Those are the tools that are most important, the software tools that you use to help people solve their problems. And this is one that is in my kit and I couldn't live without. Go to Assist Express. What does it do? Well, it gives you remote access. How many times have you been on the phone and just wished you could reach through the phone and fix the problem? It'd be so much quicker, wouldn't it? Well, now you can. Even if the client doesn't have this installed, you just get in a chat or you send them or you email them a link. They click the link. 
And of course, you've schooled them not to do this, but you say, look, I'm going to send you a link. This link is safe. It goes to the website, go to assist.com. Uh, you download the very small little Java thing. It won't take more than uh, 30 seconds uh, if they're on a you know broadband connection. It's very quick. And now they're ready. You can get in their system. You can see what's going on. You can modify stuff. It's as if you're working on your computer, but through Go to Assist Express. Works on Macs, PCs, completely cross-platform. You can support a Mac from a PC and vice versa. Uh, it has some features designed for support. You know, the back end, of course, is this great remote access that Citrix is famous for. But it also has some additional user features that you're going to love. The ability to do eight sessions at once. So you start a scan on one machine and install another, and boom, 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 you just move, boom. Makes you so much more productive. Uh, it allows you to do a survey on what the operating system is, exact versions, exact service pack number. You can also find out what security software is running, anything running in the background, in fact. Um, chat, of course, while you're working on the system. So you can tell your client, look, I'm uh, doing this, I'm doing that. I, I can go on and on, but I just want you to try it free for 30 days. They have day passes and a 30-day monthly subscription. Depending on how often you do this, uh, one will be right for you. But you've got it free for the month right now. Right now. Visit gotoassist.com slash security. Gotoassist.com slash security. Find out where Frost and Sullivan, an uh, industry analyst group that focuses on this sector, named Go to Assist Express the worldwide market leader, number one in remote support. It's very simple. Go to assist.com slash security. And we, we do thank Citrix. They're great supporters. They've already, I talked to Michael over at Citrix, uh, and um, I told him that we want to do a parade from the old studio to the new studio. It's kind of be about mid-June. I want to invite all the hosts. I want you to come up. It'll be your chance to see the cottage. You've never been here. Never been there. And uh, then see the new studio. And we're going to just like each carry one last bit of stuff. Although for the host, I was thinking we should actually make a banner that says security now. And, and you march behind the banner. It's only two <laughs> blocks. No kidding. I was just about to ask, how long a distance is it from cottage to I think it's downtown. like the world's shortest parade. I'm going to get some bagpipers. Float. We'll have a float. <laughs> but Michael says, I told Michael about this at Citrix, and he said, oh, we want to sponsor it. So <laughs> we'll have a sponsored parade. It'll be a lot of fun. The final final stuff moving from the cottage to the new studio. Oh, and then a, great idea. a big party. That's the main thing. I want to do a 24-hour live <laughs> party. You're invited. You can, you, you, you can abuse the restaurant next door before they abuse you. <laughs> oh, they'll be, they'll be catering it. They'll be thrilled. Ah. So uh, let's start uh, with uh, the security uh, updates, I guess, because, uh, well, you, it's funny. You didn't put this in your notes, but I just was doing an update. Uh, Apple did a big update. Right, a huge 300 and some odd meg update of, uh, of OS X. Uh, just, you know, catching up security stuff, standard, you know, next version of OS X and uh, it took uh, about an hour for me to get downloaded, and then it it uh, it sits and you know rebuilds itself in a sort of a non applications running mode, and then restarts, and you've got the next version. So it doesn't seem like anything's changed, but I know there are a lot of security patches and all sorts right. of stuff. Yeah, no big feature changes. Um, we talked last week about the recently discovered at the time recently zero and bad zero day exploit for Flash which was being exploited by people who had a malicious shockwave flash file embedded in an Excel file. Then there was like a third layer. I can't quite remember what it was. But anyway, it was being used for targeted attacks that Google said were politically motivated somehow uh, based on their observation. And they Google security also recommended um, 
Oh, I'm getting myself confused. That was the MHTML mistake that right. was politically motivated that, that Google said, use the fix it to disable yourself. Right. Um, and we still have no fix for that over on the, over on the Microsoft side. But we did get a fix for the, the, the auth um, DLL problem, which was actually part of Reader and Acrobat, but exploited through Flash. And so... Um, two days ago, from the, when, when we were recording this, on March 21st, Adobe did release updates for their, um, for their various versions of 9, Adobe Reader and Acrobat 9. They're, they are holding to not releasing one for X or 10 uh, because they're saying that the, uh, their built-in protections are holding over on that side. And so they're going to wait until summertime. To, to update on, you know, on their schedule um, in their normal cycle, their quarterly cycle, but they were unable to do that for people who were still using 8 and 9. So I did want to let everyone know, you can just go adobe.com slash support slash security, and there's separate updates for Flash and for Reader or Acrobat, depending on which one you have installed on your system. And I've got to say... I'm liking what Chrome is doing, uh, you know, un under Google's management. They auto-patched Flash for themselves the prior Wednesday, the 16th. Just That's interesting. So they are taking responsibility for the version of Flash that comes with Chrome. Yes, they are, hmm. which I find is interesting. I don't know what their arrangement is with Adobe that allows them to do that, but they responded instantly with this. And it just, you know, people who were using Chrome just had it fixed. The more I use it, the more I love it. I got it. Yeah, you. and boy, is it speedy. Yep. I'm, I've, um, I'm, I've, I've looked at some benchmarks relative to IE9 that we'll be talking about here in a minute. And, and Chrome is really out there. I mean, it's, it is really, really speedy. Um, we don't have any updates from Microsoft. Uh, I did want to remind everyone, though, that IE8 was pwned. Um, during pwned own at the um, at the Vancouver security uh, conference a couple weeks ago, using three undisclosed, undisclosed but still unpatched vulnerabilities. That, you know the the person who came up with that has I'm sure communicated them to Microsoft, and Microsoft is fixing them. Um, and as long as they stay secret and don't and no one else discovers them independently, then that's a good thing. But of course, knowing that they're there does encourage people to go after them. So the clock is ticking on that. Yeah. Um, the week's biggest security news was that RSA announced oh. they got broken into. Yeah, I was so hoping you'd talk about this because I'd love to know what this means. Not only am I talking about it, I, I did my first blog posting in a long while because I was so annoyed with what little they said. They're... Their senior VP guy put out an, a, a, an announcement on their site, and they even made an SEC filing, a filing with the Security Exchange really? Commission. Wow. Because, like, because they felt they had to. It had because material it material impact on their business. Material, well, materially affect their stock evaluation. Yeah. So, so excerpting from like, like the, the most annoying chunk from... 
from what they wrote. And anyone who's interested can go to steve.grc.com, and it's my most recent blog posting there that has had a lot of really great feedback added to it since I, I, I put it up earlier this week. RSA wrote, and get a load of this, bureaucratic say-nothing speech. <laughs> oh, that's unbelievable. <laughs> Our investigation also revealed hmm. that the attack resulted in certain information being extracted from RSA's systems. Some of that information is specifically related to RSA's Secure ID two-factor authentication products. While at this time, we are confident that the information extracted does not enable a successful direct attack on any of our RSA Secure ID customers, this information could potentially be used to reduce the effectiveness of a current two-factor authentication implementation as part of a broader attack. We are very actively communicating this situation to RSA customers and providing immediate steps for them to take to strengthen their Secure ID implementations. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. If you have a two if you have a multi-factor authentication system and one factor relies on a piece of hardware whose numbers are changing. The secure ID is basically what we've talked about, like with the PayPal dongle, the VIP technology, you know, that's what it is. It's a time-based, changing every 30 seconds, six or eight digit, typically six, you know, LCD screen thing. So is it, is, I have this VeriSign identity protection. Same thing. It's the, but is, is this the one or is it, is this no, using no, no. RSA? This, is, it, it, this, this would be one from RSA. Well, no. Uh, the VeriSign is from VeriSign. VeriSign uses Vasco, I think, oh, as okay. their provider. And... But, but, I mean, it's the same technology. It's a it's cryptographically driven, time-based, six characters, you know, six digits. Right. And you, the point is that it's driven by a unique key right. that nobody knows. Well, somebody knows it now. <laughs> and that's the point. So you mean all of the cards on the RSA technology are compromised? We don't know that. Okay. So... So what they're, what RSA is claiming is they said, okay, so reading from my own blog posting, I said on March 17th, 2011, Art uh, Covillo, RSA Securities Executive Chairman, posted a disturbingly murky statement on their website, disclose, and I have a link to that on my blog posting, disclosing their discovery of a what they called an APT, an advanced persistent threat. In other words, they discovered that bad guys had been rummaging around within their internal network for some time, hence, hence persistent, and had managed to penetrate one of their most sensitive and secret databases, the Secure ID system. Unbelievable. Um, I, I know. And, and so what, what has upset many people, not just myself, but, I mean, many people is that RSA, that's, that's just all, essentially all they've said. But then they've also said other things like, make sure 
not to let people see the serial number on your RSA oh, I just dongle. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's VeriSign. It's, uh, I hope they haven't been compromised. No, no. VeriSign's completely different. Okay. So I don't want to confuse anybody. Yeah. Completely different. RSA has something called Secure ID that is their take on you know, adding a hardware token or a software token. You can also do, you know, software. But a lot, uh, by the way, I want to just point out that this is widely used in government. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And by spooks. Um, 40 million. Uh, when SANS, the, the SANS Security Institute w w w was reporting this, they mentioned that 40 million secure ID tokens have been deployed, which are often used to conduct financial transactions and by government and major corporations. Dr. Mom says the hospital healthcare system he she works for uses those keys for record access. Yeah, I mean this it, it, this is big. So in my blog posting essentially I I took the position of okay, they're not saying anything, but what they did say was that their secure ID two-factor authentication system had been compromised. Well, okay, there's only one thing that, that is a secret, and that is the mapping between the serial number on, that's printed publicly for the public to see on the outside of the secure ID tokens and the matching cryptographic key, which determines uniquely the sequence of numbers from one thirty-second interval to the next. So, if if anything has been compromised, that's what's been compromised because there's nothing else to be compromised. <laughs> In fact, that's their entire business, <laughs> and that's the worst thing that could possibly be compromised. Jesus. So, oh my God, it's really bad. So you know, and and they and they're uh, and there's uh, down way down toward the end of the comments. I link to another person's blog posting that I liked a lot because he essentially, you know, took them even further to task than I did. Um, and, and, had, and there have been people privy now who, are, who have seen the letters that RSA has sent to their corporate customers. You know, they're basically their CYA letters, which are essentially telling the customers to be much more careful with their own networks and with their own disclosure of of things relating to secure ID, like don't let people know what the serial numbers are. See, it used to be fine because no one knew what the secret key was that the serial number mapped to. But if that database has escaped RSA, if that's been exfiltrated, and, and, I mean, to be sympathetic to RSA, and I was at one point, I said, you know, bad things happen. And if, if people are using toy operating systems, which is what we're all sitting in front of, you know, I mean, Windows is a toy. You know, it, 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 look at I mean, what, what a catastrophe it is from a malware and virus standpoint. I mean, so, so here's a corporation like RSA that is... You, you really want to have bulletproof industry strength security, but they've got to be using Windows or Macs. Yeah. And these machines are, are, are 
not secure. We that's why we have a podcast, and <laughs> and so so unfortunately, you know, and and you know, they talked about it being a oh a very sophisticated cyber attack, and I'm hoping that it wasn't that somebody didn't just open a bad PDF file and get God, themselves I, yeah yeah oh, oh, because that's how this stuff oh. happens all the time. So so I really I am sympathetic to the fact that somebody got into their network. But it's it's very, very difficult not to have people getting into the networks of large corporations when people really want to get into the networks of right. large corporations. And now here's the problem, is that after the fact, they discover this so-called APT, you know, persistent threat. Well, how do you answer the question, what did they get? You, how do you know what you they got? You don't know. Really, don't know. You know, it's exactly analogous to what we've talked about. If you've got malware in your system, if your system has got you know a rootkit on it or malware that you've discovered, you can never again be sure of the security of that machine. You know, it's you have to, you know, go back to an image made from a time before that thing got in. And then work forward, you, or format the hard drive and hope you know, that it didn't infect the firmware of your display adapter. Um, so we talked about I mean, that last week for folks who just said what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you know, I'm I, I really I'm seriously sympathetic to RSA's condition, and they're a big corporation. They're owned by EMC, an even bigger corporation. They've got obligations to their shareholders. They've op got obligations to, you know, all of the 40 million users of their secure ID tokens who are now wondering, is this secure or not? So, I mean, I have suggested, drawn the conclusion that since something got away from them that relates to secure ID, and the only thing that they have that relates to secure ID is that mapping database between the publicly known serial numbers and the secret cryptographic keys on all those devices. They may not know how much of it got out. We hope it didn't all get out, but we're talking about replacing all of those. Mm. I mean, they're not secure now. So, what RSA seems to be telling their customers is, well, um, try to keep all the other factors as secure as possible because the one you bought from us <laughs> You're <isn't>. screwed. <laughs> oh, boy. It's not. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> so, meanwhile, RIM, Research in Motion, uh, our BlackBerry uh, creators. I just ordered the new playbook. I'm excited. Um, I was going to ask you, Leo, if I were to get a Android tablet, what do you think? You think because the playbook is supposed to support Android? No, I guess the we'll playbook is not. It's QNX. Oh, I know, but it apparently supports Android apps. What? You haven't heard that? Yeah. No. Oh, that's exciting. That's good news. Yeah. That opens up, a, of course, a giant app store. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that in a minute because okay. I, in my errata, I'm okay. <laughs> talking about Amazon. Yeah, I mean, I, there are a lot of third-party Android, yeah, third-party, there are a lot of companies making Android tablets, including the new Samsung Galaxy Tab. There's a 7-inch, but there's a 10-1 coming. There's the Zoom we've talked about with Motorola. A lot of, lot of kind of off-brands. Arcos makes them. 
Um, but, uh, you know, I think that uh, these it's still a little rugged, a little rough. Yep. I was very impressed with the 7-inch playbook when I played with it. Um, ah, so you briefly. have had your hands on it. Oh, yeah. we ha I had it at Regis for the Regis and Kelly show. Ah. And um, very impressed with its multitasking. It's a, you know, QNX is a really robust real-time operating oh, system. Oh, it's been around forever and ever. Yeah. yeah. So I think that was an interesting and, and good choice. Now, of course, it's not known as a touch operating system, but the touch seemed to work quite well. Ah, good. So we'll see. I'll, uh, I ordered it. It comes April 19th. Oh, yay. Cool. Yeah. Um, so anyway, what, uh, uh, what I was saying about RIM and BlackBerry is that they were unnerved by the fact that they got pwned also during CanSec West a couple of weeks ago. Right. And they're now advising all their customers, wait for it, wait for it. Buy, a, buy an iPhone. Disable JavaScript. <laughs> oh, well, there you Whoa, go. Oh, where have we heard that? Right, right, as, right as rain. Exactly. <laughs> so um, the, it's a flaw in their WebKit-based browser yes, in web the BlackBerry. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, it, you need to disable JavaScript. Now, JavaScript is not the problem but you need JavaScript, wait for it, wait for it, <laughs> to exploit the flaw. <laughs> yes. <you> do. <laughs> so just turn JavaScript just off on your BlackBerry. I don't ever use my BlackBerry browser because it's the crappiest it's browser, browser on the planet. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's just like, <laughs> it's just horrible. I'm surprised to hear it's WebKit based because it, it doesn't seem like it's got anything going for it. It sort so. of hurts the, the reputation yeah. of WebKit. I, I don't know what it's doing most of the time, but it's just, it's, you know, I don't have my BlackBerry to browse. I have it for messaging, and it's, I think it's the best messaging platform there is. So you bet. that's what I have it for. Um, India, speaking of BlackBerry, India and BlackBerry are in the news again um, with the uh, Robert Crow, who's the BlackBerry VP of Industry and Government Re Relations, quoted as saying, holy smokes, um, because... India's Home Ministry, which is responsible for domestic security, has informed BlackBerry that it will require the ability to intercept communication data sent via email capabilities of the BlackBerry handset. And uh, Crow was quoted, said, according to Crow, these demands could potentially open up the doors to further problems, such as whether the government tracking of ambassadorial conversations or even transfer financial files would be off limits. BlackBerry's concern is that, first of all, they really care about the security that they're offering to the users of their handsets. They have repeatedly told the Indian authorities that they, it's impossible to do what they want, and they've reiterated that, that they don't have the keys, that, the, that their fundamental architecture is an end-to-end encryption and there's nothing they can do now um and they and the point they're making here is that apparently they're not very confident of the infrastructure in india mm. to responsibly manage mm -hmm. the you know the opening these doors which you know i mean sure they could update their firmware and they could rejigger things and fundamentally dramatically weaken their platform but if they did so, what kind of abuse would this open, um, you know, the, themselves to? If this, if this suddenly it became known that you know that people without much authorization were able to get access to to email messaging, it would substantially hurt the platform. So they're at an impasse. India has not given any deadlines, and significantly, they have not singled out BlackBerry. 
there are other VPN and peer-to-peer -peer technology providers like Skype that have been given the same really? ultimatum. Oh, even, interesting. Yeah. So I, I don't see how this is anything more than huffing and puffing on India's part, but we keep talking about this. It doesn't go away, and this has just happened again. So uh, he, he, he said you connect the dots, and you're saying, holy smokes. Yeah. Um, I wanted to let our UK listeners know, and I know we have many people who, who follow the podcast from the UK, that the major ISPs there have, are, have all signed on to a, a voluntary policy where they're going to specifically delineate what they're doing with bandwidth shaping. BT, Virgin Media, Sky, and others have signed a voluntary code of practice saying that they'll provide consumers with clear traffic management policy information Good. explaining when internet connection speeds are throttled, why they are, and what effect that throttling will likely have on consumers' broadband service. That's all we uh, want to know. Yes, and the disclosures will also state whether the provider has arrangements with specific content providers to prioritize their traffic. So basically coming clean. Yeah, great. Uh, which is really, really good news. If you're going to do it, at least uh, let us know so we can choose. That's great. So, yeah, I was uh, really glad to see that. Right. So Friday morning, uh, I got a call from Good Morning America. Really? Who um, they wanted someone who could talk on the issue of celebrities, cell phones, and um, uh, email accounts and, and things being hacked. And uh, I said, well, I can do that. And they said, well, we'd like to talk to you. And uh, so we talked for about 45 minutes. And then uh, the producer of this, of this pending segment said, Steve, um, come on up. And let's put you on camera and just wow. say, everything, say everything that you said again. Well, I brought my MacBook Air up with a copy <laughs> of Fire Sheet. <laughs> that must have been fun. <laughs> let's put it this way. The, the, the aim of the segment changed when, when they saw what was going on. And uh, I don't yet know when it's going to air, but I will let... Uh, I will certainly tweet. I, I won't be able to, if unless it's a coincidence of timing, and I can do it on the podcast. I, I will, but I'll, 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 I'll tweet when. Can when you tell I know. us how many uh, people you know was on that list on the left there? Uh, well, it got populated yeah. and blew their mind. Yeah. And I'm, and I think one of the things they're going to do is set it up themselves and reproduce it just to show how easy it is. Right. But. One of the things that I thought was significant was I hadn't looked at the download count for a while, and I haven't for two days. But on Monday, we were at 1,334,000 wow. downloads. And the, by the following day, it had gone up by another 3,500. Yeah. So it is still being downloaded. It still works. and And now... The good news is it's having an effect. Um, Ars Technica just yesterday put out a large column and about halfway down, they said something like, and I'm just paraphrasing from memory, but it was like Fire Sheep 
how a good UI can change the internet. And of course, you'll remember this is why I was celebrating, you know, with with right. a, with a caveat, why I was celebrating the release of Fire Sheep. That's why Twitter now has, you know, always HTTPS. That's why mm -hmm. Facebook has it. It mm -hmm. forced Google to go, you know, site-wide more than just using it in Gmail. So, I mean, it, and I'm really happy that Good Morning America, you know, a widely watched, you know, nationwide network morning news show is going to, you know, aim some more light on this because this will, you know, raising the awareness of, of the danger. First of all, it's really good to do to let people know what the dangers are, but to get the word out is, is yeah. so important. Too. I'm actually surprised they're going to do it because uh, their issue is going to be this is going to scare the pants off people, and mm. unfortunately the fix is kind of technical. And uh, I yep. but I'm glad they're doing it now. I for those a bunch of, go ahead. For those who don't know what Fire Sheep is, we did a show on it uh, and a good description. But this and the short answer is turn on WPA2 on an open <laughs> access point and don't use open access points that don't have security. Right, and uh, for. For those services that do allow you to use HTTPS, um, try to do so. You right. know, turn those settings on in in Facebook and Twitter and 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 in on Google accounts. Mm. Yeah. So if you put if you put into Google, how do I install and use Fire Sheep? You get eight hundred and eighty six thousand <laughs> links. <laughs> it's pretty easy. Lots of people want to know that one. Yeah. So wow, 1.3 million that's, downloads that's since stunning. we were talking about Isn't this. That's amazing. Yeah. Many Christmas. Um, I got a a tweet that I wanted to share from someone who's who his handle on Twitter is BioTurboNick, who said, "Just found a bunch of Trojans via an MSSE full scan huh. that weren't found by the quick scan." The oh, shocker, that's good to know. Yes, he said the shocker, they were all Java related. Ah. So we had been talking recently about Java and about removing it unless you needed it. And um, because it's becoming a problem. I mean, it, it is a, you know, it's like we, get, we fix one thing and then the bad guys move to the next soft target. Mm -hmm. After we harden that target, they, they find something else soft. But so this is, you know, the, the, um, uh, the built-in... Anyone with Windows has it now, the Microsoft tool. And I think you can just, in the run dialog, you can put MS or, or MRT or... It's I, a or, MRT. Yeah, MRT. And in it'll the open it dialogue. up. Yes. And then you can click thorough scan. I, so I, I tell people on the radio show to do this, and I'm glad Good. to hear... Well, I'm not glad, but, I, but it does reaffirm my inclination to do a thorough scan if you have, think you have a problem. Right. Because it's better. Right. Uh, I also discovered, to my surprise, just yesterday, we're in a RATA section now, so I get to be a little weird here. <laughs> this is, I don't know if a RATA is the right word. Um, miscellanea. Tidbits. Miscellanea. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you're right. You're right. That William Shatner turned 80. I yesterday. heard that, and it stunned me. I, 80. I, I can't believe he's 80. He looks fantastic. Yes. And I made, in, in, in my tweet, because I, I, I tweeted this, I said, you know, gee, we have, you know, last time we saw him, on Boston Legal, he was he, I, he he looked great, you know, maybe a little heavy, but great. And I got a ton of you know people tweeting back saying, uh, "Steve, that's not the last time we saw him. Aren't you washing? 
you know, watching crap my dad says. Oh, that's right. Like, He's a star of that show. Yeah, and apparently very funny. So I've never seen a single episode of it, but I, I added it into TiVo. So it'll, I think it's on Thursdays. So uh, tomorrow. Well, you know, it's I'll, based on Twitter. Yes, it, yeah. exactly. And I think you and I talked about it back when it was just going to be happening. And so right. we're in the first season of it. Many people say it's very, very funny. And the Shatner's fantastic. Oh, and I can imagine him being, being really. But Leo, 80. I've got friends who are in their early 70s <laughs> who can barely walk. I know. Denny he Crane, he's looking good. He really is. Happy so. birthday. I, you know, I think it's all that time travel he did. <laughs> yes. Maybe that's I th it. I think that explains he's it. He's actually 400. Because he's, you know, <laughs> yeah. he's so much older than he looks. And um, there was also something interesting that I ran into on the Tech Dirt uh, site. By the uh, way, before we go on. There's another fellow celebrating a birthday on Saturday. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't look a day over 80 either. <laughs> Thank goodness. As long as we're talking birthdays, I, I've just been informed your birthday is Saturday. Happy birthday. Oh, boy, that chat room. I tell you. Can't, <laughs> they are sharp. Can't pull anything over them. They are sharp. I know. I don't celebrate either. After 50, it's like, mm, let's not let's not talk oh, about I this. I don't care. Okay. I, I talked to mom. Because I, I wanted to let her know about the Good Morning America spot that might be happening. And oh. she said, uh, well, it's about time. <laughs> <laughs> What'd she say? She said, happy birthday. She said, happy birthday. I said, I, and she said I'll be calling you on Saturday. Oh. I said, well, that's, that's, that's our, our routine. I called her on the 5th, which that's was so her great. birthday. So oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. Well, yeah, happy birthday to you, Steve. Thank you. Um, so Tech Dirt had an interesting... Uh, Posting, someone wondering if using NoScript to bypass the New York Times newly erected paywall would be violating the DMCA. Oh. And I thought that's interesting. Now, apparently, so a little bit of backstory. The New York Times has generated a huge amount of, of kerfuffle uh, since announcing that it's either this week or next week that they're no longer going to be free. Yeah, you'll and it's you'll expensive if you're not a subscriber. Oh, Leo, it's it's like prohibitively yeah. expensive, really expensive. Yeah. And um, and so it's like, okay, I can find my news elsewhere. I mean, I like the New York Times. I love the New York Times. But, you know, wow, they want a lot of money. So um, as I understand it, you can, you can see... 20, you can directly look at 20 articles, and then they block you. But if you click on links elsewhere, like on search engines that take you to stories, then they don't block you. And, and I mean, it's, it, I remember thinking, it's, the whole thing sounded kind of flaky. Wall Street Journal does that for some reason. It, you, you cannot see full articles in the Wall Street Journal unless you either are a subscriber or pay for it. But if you find a Wall Street artic Journal article link on Google News, you get the full article. So yeah. all I do when I when we share Wall Street Journal articles with our hosts, because we're going to talk about them, I just go to Google News, get the article, and send them that link because they can read the whole thing. Crazy. So I think these companies know and understand that there are loopholes. But they figure most users are not going to know about them or take advantage of them, so that's fine. So people who have looked have determined that there's four lines of JavaScript that are is like well, at least they're efficient. 
and and that if you have no script on, then this ridiculous paywall, as it's called, doesn't get erected. Yeah. And you can simply use the New York Times without being blocked. And so the question then would be, is are you altering the content and violating the New York Times copyright through, you know, like their terms of service probably change to reflect the paywall? So anyway, it's sort of an interesting question. There's a book marklet called NYT Clean, which is just, you know, being a book marklet, it's a little bit of JavaScript in a in a in a bookmark essentially and if you ever you can put it probably probably google n-y-t-c-l-e-a-n to find it um and it uh you just click that and then it, it resets your your paywall blocking so you know i i don't know it seems crazy for them to have done something so weak well again i think that they realize that there are i mean how many people use no script compared to their subscriber base. Good point. Lots yeah. of people will go, oh, shoot, okay, here's my money. I think I'm, anything I wanna, I wanna... like this relies on goodwill. You you can always get around. We don't charge for anything we do, and uh, one of the reasons is I watched what happened when Revision 3 started to charge for Dignation. They said you can get early access if you pay for it. Mm -hmm. And of course, when you have a technically sophisticated audience, as they do and we do, it didn't take more than a day or two before people paid for it and then put the early release version out on the Internet. So nobody really had to pay for it. They quickly abandoned the, the plan. Uh, I yep. would never do a subscribe uh, version of this because I know that you guys are way too smart and we immediately get around it. But I'm sure that, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times just figure, well, we, you know... We, we're going to rely on the goodwill of our, our readers for the moment. And they're wanting to get some revenue. They, yeah. It's been free for forever. So they're saying, okay, it's time for us to start making money. And it will be very interesting to see how this turns out for them. The Times says they don't need more than a few percent of the people uh, who read yeah. it to pay to make it worthwhile. Ah, cool. It's quite annoying. I subscribe. I am actually, I get the dead tree version. So I'll get it for free. So you have free online access. Yeah. yeah. It's really expensive, though. I don't think I'd pay for it if I didn't get, if I didn't. Ah. Yeah. It's too it expensive. Is. Yeah. I mean, there's just too many other good places you can go. Well, and we're conditioned to getting it for free. So, yes, exactly. It breaks, exactly. It breaks the Internet, frankly. It's not, the you know, so we'll see. I, I think it's foolish, but, you know, it's their business. So the news is really nothing but good at Fukushima. We've, we've followed the, we've talked about the reactor problems since the earthquake and the tsunami. And I've been tweeting about it constantly as I've been just sort of like following their their progress in getting electrical power restored. They're they're filling the reactors from afar by shooting water into the spent fuel rod pools. Um, and the the reactors five and six now have cooling uh, electrically powered cooling for their spent fuel um, pools. The uh, the reactors did re uh, reach uh, cool shutdown, so that that is one through four, the ones that were running at the time, and um, and they've got electric power now being brought to them, and they're they're bringing them back. So basically, I think this is going to end up being really an amazing case of phen phenomenal luck. That um, oh, that's not that, good. If you're relying on luck for this stuff, that's not good. Yeah. Um, I did have a real, I found a great URL that I want to share with people. Um, it's jaif.or.jp slash English. And it's a, a lean site 
that several times a day publishes an updated PDF chart of the status of all six reactors with a tremendous amount of detail. Really interesting. So again, it's jaif.or.jp slash English. And um, so I just wanted to pass that on. The Japanese Nuclear Foundation, what is it? It's a Japanese Atomic, Atomic Industry Industrial Forum. That's it. Yeah. Exactly. And if you look, at, if you just click one of the, like, like the most recent link at the top there of, of their, their PDFs, it's just, you wow. know, it's just a spectacular chart and several pages of it too. I think six or seven pages of, of information. Wow. So if, for anyone who's been as in, interested in and having their fingers crossed as, as I have as this, uh, you know, I mean, the last thing we wanted was a really bad problem there. So I think they've averted it. And just my final little bit of wackiness is the news that Apple has sued Amazon yeah. over Amazon's use of the term App Store. Yeah. It's like, oh, come on. App Store? Really? A Apple, you think you own that term? They do have a now, trademark. I mean, well, and so I wrote to my own trademark guy, my intellectual property guy, this morning. And he wrote back and he said, I wanted to share what he said because there's a little bit of insider, um, uh, inside industry info. He said, it is an interesting case. Apple based its U.S. application for the mark App Store on a foreign registration from Trinidad, likely hoping to go under the radar as opposed to filing directly like normal. Now, and, and understand, the reason they did that is that normally App Store would never qualify. I mean, no, it'd be it's like... It's too generic. It's exactly... Well, it's descriptive. And that uh, something uh -huh. that's descriptive is immediately disqualified for, uh -huh. for trademark registration. Interesting. It's, it's why something like Kleenex, the word Kleenex tells you nothing about, you know, what the product is. And someone mentioned in, in, our, in the GRC news groups that, that, you know, well, after all, Microsoft got trademark on Windows. It's like, yes... But that, with the word Windows, even though it actually is, a, you know, a word, it, it doesn't describe right. at all what Microsoft software was. You know, they created that connection. But, you know, Apple trying to get App Store is really, you know, pushing the limits. So, 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 so continuing um, what my attorney said, he said, so um, they filed in Trinidad, likely hoping to go under the radar as opposed to filing directly like normal. It had the opposite effect. Apple's application was refused registration in the U.S. based on descriptiveness. Oh, interesting. But, but then they overcame the refusal on appeal by arguing acquired descriptiveness, basically that it was descriptive, but now due to Apple's marketing and notoriety, mm -hmm. consumers know the App Store emanates from Apple. Mm, that's a good point. U.S. Trade, uh, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office bought the argument, but Microsoft is now opposing the registration of the application. I believe Amazon saw Microsoft's argument and thought, let's ride Microsoft's coattail. And, and he finally said, this is one of the really interesting cases between folks with plenty of resources. Mm -hmm. This will be played out on many levels and a lot of fun for us with no interest in the case. <laughs> 
Yeah, because uh, Amazon has an app store now, and it, uh, it's an Android app store. I use it. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty and, good. And, and you've seen all the rumors about, about Amazon doing an Android tablet? Mm-hmm. I mean, they'd be perfect for it. Turning the Kindle into an Well, you know, the Nook, the color Nook, is a pretty capable Android tablet if you hack it. The Barnes & Noble Nook. Oh, no kidding. Oh, yeah. And, it, and in fact, Microsoft, <laughs> just, just to complete the circle, is suing <laughs> Barnes & Noble over, <laughs> over Android. Preparatory, I think, to uh, claiming Microsoft. that... Microsoft claims Wait, that Android... Mean- Microsoft claims that Android violates its patents. And oh, this is the first of what I expect will be... Oh, my God. Then they're going to establish that yep. and then go after Google. Yeah. Well, I think they wait until they have a pretty good war chest before they go after Google. Wow. So it's a fast, It's just a fascinating... I mean, oh, my God. <laughs> I always say, you know, compete, don't litigate. And often companies that can't compete end up litigating, and that's just a mess. Wow. Just a mess. Well, um, I did have a short note from a listener... Uh, David W. Roscoe, who wrote to say that Spinrite saved a music studio. He said, hello, Steve. I'm a longtime user of and advocate of Spinrite. I've also been a listener of Security Now from the beginning, and I've heard you tell a few stories about using Spinrite to, to recover hard drives from devices that are not computers. I have such a story, which you might not have heard yet. My brother is a professional musician. He uses a Boss BR 1180 CD digital recording studio. It's a tabletop device that he uses to record and mix his songs. One day he told me that it had stopped working after going through a period of increasingly frequent freezing. He said his repair service could fix it by replacing the hard drive, but he would lose the several dozen songs he has stored inside. He did not have any backups and asked me, the family computer geek, whether there was another way. I told him about Spinrite, that I was willing to give it a try on his hard drive. He had nothing to lose, so he let me. I opened the device and discovered that it contained a 20-gig IDE hard drive. I moved it to one of my computers and ran Spinrite on it, which found a bunch of bad sectors, including some non-recoverable ones. But the device did not work again when I reinstalled the drive. Apparently, one of those non-recoverable sectors had contained something needed for startup. I will skip the details and say simply that I was able to find the song folders after Spinrite fixed it on the mostly recovered drive, copy them to an initialized replacement drive, and trick the device into thinking that those songs were its own. He is a computer wizard. My brother got all the songs back and was very pleased. This would not have been possible without Spinrite. Thanks for all the great stuff you've produced and continue to produce. Sincerely, David W. Roscoe. Excellent. So Excellent. We, we solved the problem in a roundabout way on a, on a wacky <laughs> digital recording studio thing from Boss that happened to have a hard drive in it. I wish I could easily get the hard drive out of my iMac. It's a real pain because my son's uh, hard drive crashed, and I'm, bet, I, I'm sure I could... Put it in a, a PC, spin write it, and it would all be fine. Yeah, but it's the the the, the iMac is the, the big negative. You have to you have to actually take suction cups and remove them the glass. It's very Oof. it's ridiculous. Oof. Colleen did it. She's got more nerve than I did uh, some time ago when the hard drive on my uh, iMac here died, 
And I remember watching her do it, and I thought, oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, jeez. I ain't doing that. No use of serviceable parts inside there. She can weld, so she can pretty yeah. much do anything. Well, she had nerve. That was the thing. I mean, that's that just takes nerve. <laughs> it was like, you know, I mean, suction cups to remove the glass. It was crazy. I think I might have to try it, though, just to see. Or a hammer. That would be the other way. Hey, before we get to the meat of the matter, which, of course, is IE9, we're going to talk about that in just a second, and the, the deets, internal deets on IE9, whether you can trust it. Uh, let's talk about FreshBooks, our great sponsor, FreshBooks.com. Uh, if you are a consultant, uh, you have any occasion to invoice people, you have your own business, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you bill for time and hours, this is the solution. For many, many years, I did my own invoices with Word, and it was painful to say the least. But, uh, you know, I got it done. Then in 2004, Amber MacArthur told me about FreshBooks. She said, hey, this is a great company, and uh, I know the guys, and you should give it a try. I did. And, man, for years, this is how I did my invoices. I uploaded my logo. These uh, invoices are so easy to generate. You do it online on their website, press a button. They email the invoices. For an additional charge, you can have them print, stamp, and mail the invoices. So, the, And I always, I always did that with a few of the older clients because I knew they wanted paper invoices. But here's the reason I love the email invoices. There's a button on the email that says, pay this invoice now. They click it, and they can pay you with a credit card, PayPal, or 11 other payment services, electronic payment services. So it's really easy for them to pay. And I can tell you, when it's easy to pay, you get paid more quickly. In fact, on their 2007 user survey, FreshBooks customers said they got paid on average two weeks faster. Of course they did, because it's just so easy. Now, if you have a client that doesn't pay, they've got the great late payment reminders. You can automatically have those invoices resent at the time, you know, the intervals of your choosing uh, with any message you want. Saves you a lot of time on, on delinquency. And if you do hours, if, you're, if you bill by time and hours, they've got a great FreshBooks uh, mini books app for the iPhone that's free. You can manage clients, send invoices, run timers, and much more. You can use the timer on the website as well, and those hours go right into your invoice automatically. I liked it because I was invoicing in Canada as well as the U.S., and it handled Canadian currency and U.S. dollars automatically. It looked great, it was effective, it was flexible, and I tell you, it took all of the pain out of invoicing. Here's the best part. Free for up to three clients. So if you're a small business, you want to try it out, set it up right now. FreshBooks.com. All day this month, they're having a drawing every single day for a birthday cake for a new FreshBooks customer. You can win a free birthday cake. Just for, it'll, It may not be your birthday this month, but it's Steve's, so you can enjoy it for Steve. <laughs> of course, 200, get this, 256-bit SSL encryption. All facilities are SAS 70 compliant, so yes, it's secure. No no worry about anybody snooping on your invoices. I love FreshBooks. I know you'll like it too. Find out why 2 million people have used FreshBooks in the last seven years. You might be one of them. FreshBooks.com. Try it free today for up to three clients. Easy online invoicing. You're going to love it. IE9 just came out, what about last week? Microsoft pushed it out. People have been using the release candidate, but now the official version is out. doesn't automatically update in Windows. You have to, um, when you open IE8, you get a little button that says, wouldn't you like to try IE9? But uh, I think they said something like 25 million people have. So it's, it's out there. So it's really good news. Um, I don't think it matters 
<laughs> but it's really good news. It is, it is a, in many ways, a state-of-the-art web browser for Windows. And that's just a good thing. I mean, it's, you know, as we know, Internet Explorer has been losing market share. Uh, the more really good browsers come in, the more people get pried away from IE. Uh, I famously got pried away over to Firefox. I'm not going back because I love the Firefox ecosystem. You know, you were on Firefox for a while, having left Safari on the Mac, and now you're a Chrome user. Big-time Chrome fan, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the one of the problems that the whole industry has had is that IE has really been a boat anchor from a standards standpoint. Um, famously, there, there were some things that... that but version after version after version from IE5 on, and these, you know, are multi-year gaps between, Microsoft just stubbornly refused to fix or, or, or to do the event model. Now that I'm a JavaScript programmer, I'm, <laughs> I'm having to work around IE-specific stuff all the time. And finally, in 9, they have, they've actually gone overboard, if that's possible, with with um, support for standards and and so it represents a massive investment on Microsoft's part to to create a browser which is as standards compliant as they are and in fact they're now more standards compliant than anybody else. Oh, they're, interesting. Good for they, them. They really are. I've got some numbers here that that I'll cover. But so this was. Two, two years in the making, they announced their work on 9 shortly after the release of 8. Um, and this was like at the developers conference in 09 that they said, okay, we're going to start working on IE9. And, you know, and they began bringing pieces of it out. Um, it's got strong support for uh, CSS3, Cascading Style Sheets 3, and Scalable Vector Graphics, SVG technology. Um, they're... Score on the ACID-3 test is a 95 out of 100. Um, whereas IE-8, which, you know, was two weeks ago, was 20 wow. out of 100. Well, that's a big improvement. So it's a huge improvement. And, and, and Firefox 3 is a 94. So they, oh, <laughs> and IE-8 just collapses completely and fails. Wow. Doesn't even, wow. yeah, it just, just. You know, is a it's a disaster. So, um, uh, so they they've really done well there. There's a it's got a new JavaScript engine code name was was Chakra, which uh, compiles to native um, Intel machine language using its own thread in the background to leverage multi-core processors. So your page comes up it and it starts to go. And then, then if you've got a multi-core processor, it'll it'll um, the 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 background just in time. The JIT compiler will will take off and basically turn your JavaScript into native code. Now, what's interesting is that while it is much faster than any IE before it has ever been, it's still not very fast. Um, well, I mean, it's a it's it's a contemporary browser, meaning that it has joined the ranks finally of 
of Firefox, Opera, and Chrome, which, um, and I guess really Safari is lagging behind now um, in, terms of, in terms of their technology. But um, it does support HTML5 audio and video natively. So, you know, this is what, what we're beginning to see is for, if, if, all, if all you really need, um, for example, Flash for is displaying movies, is displaying movie clips or, or, or video, you no longer need Flash when you've got HTML, HTML5 video support. And HTML5 wants, you know, H.264 video, which is our standard, you know, MPEG-4 container. So, so we're moving away from the dependence on Flash for, for video that we've, that we've traditionally had. Um, Lifehacker just, just like a couple days ago did a, a set of benchmarks on Firefox, Chrome, Opera, and IE. Um, IE9, meaning IE9 was, oh, so Firefox for Chrome, I think 10 and 11. 11 is the dev release of Chrome at this point. Um, Opera 10, or the latest version, I think it's Opera 10, and IE9. IE was the slowest one of those to start up. It was the slowest on JavaScript, but it was able to finish, which IE8 hadn't been able to do. Um, and interestingly, uh, the 64-bit version of IE9, which is not the default, even on 64-bit platforms, was four times slower. So probably not optimized. Maybe the just-in-time engine isn't working yet on the 64-bit platform. But, it, but again, you'd have to really try to use it because it's not the default even on 64-bit windows. The 32-bit is. Um, it also has the slowest document object, object model and CSS system. But again, it was able to finish, whereas IE8 couldn't. And it has the highest memory usage. So it's just out a few days ago, and it's pretty much across the board worse than all the others, but vastly better than IE8. Um, however, one place it blows everyone away is in its, its standards handling. It is extremely standards following. There's a there's a JavaScript test called test262.ecmascript.org. So that's T-E-S-T. People may want to play with it. It's simple, easy, super easy to use. That's why I want to give everyone the URL. T-E-S-T262.ecmascript.org. That'll come up. Now, IE8 doesn't even display the page. Just can't even get there. It runs a huge battery of tests, 10,456 different tests. My current latest version of Firefox 3 out of 10,456 tests fails 3,661 of them. Okay, we'll call Firefox 3 prior generation. Now we move to current generation. The latest Chrome, the latest version of Chrome, 
out of, again, 10,456 tests, Chrome failed 497 of those. So it passed a huge percentage, but it's failed 497. Firefox 4, just out, was better. It only failed 301. IE9 only failed 17, which is stunning. 17 out of 10,456. So, so IE9 really is incredibly standards compliant. And, you know, they have a state-of-the-art JavaScript engine. And, I mean, it, it, again, when I started off by saying I'm not sure that any of this matters, what I mean, of course, is that we have really good alternatives to IE9 anyway. The reason it's worth covering on this podcast is that it, it has a chance to, to stay strong. And even though people listening to the podcast may have already switched to Firefox and or Chrome, all of the people that they support who are still using IE can move to IE9. Next version of Windows will, I'm sure, have IE9. We've seen that the adoption rate of IE9 among Windows users who are conscious of this is strong. So it matters. Okay. It also matters in terms of what Microsoft has done from security and privacy, which I'm impressed by. Um, we've talked briefly about tracking protection lists, so-called TPLs. This is uh, something make, makes me nervous, and I'm going to explain why, but it's potentially very nice. Um, IE8 had sort of a, a uh, what, what was called in-private filtering, which was part of in-private browsing, and the way in-private filtering worked was if you went to a bunch of different websites and IE noticed that there, that there were common third-party sites that kept being invoked by the first-party sites you went to, IE8 would adaptively, and this is impressive, it would adaptively add them to a filter saying these are trackers because you're going to all these different third party, sorry, you're going to all these different first party sites and like, you know, doubleclick.net keeps popping up as being pulled by these first party sites. And, and, and uh, you know, so it was a way that IE8 would adaptively recognize tracking behavior. So that was impressive. The problem is that in private browsing wasn't something you could turn on and have stay on. You had to deliberately go there every time you started up IE. So it's like, okay, I don't know if Microsoft was afraid to do this full time or, you know, they wanted to offer it, but they they didn't. They felt that if they if you they allowed you to turn it on and have it be sticky, it would be too aggressive. Who knows? But the good news is that's changed with IE9. We now have these things called 
tracking protection lists that are files you can get from third parties who maintain them for you. The syntax of the file is very simple. No nightmare of even XML nesting stuff. It's just a simple, flat text file. The first line, in order to qualify, has to have the word filter list in it somewhere, which qualifies it as a tracking protection list. You can then put comments in by starting them with a pound sign. If the first character is a pound sign, the rest of the line is ignored as just being a comment that's human readable. If the first line starts with a colon, then that's a setting line. And at the moment, there's only one setting that's supported, and that's expires equal, and then a value which must be between 1 and 30, which is the number of days that IE can wait before checking for an update. So this is very nice. It means that you're able to add one or more of these TPLs, and IE will maintain them for you. It will go back to the source URL, which it keeps, and refresh them as this changes for you. Now, there's an additional syntax for specifying what is and is not allowed. If, the, if a line begins with a plus D, then it's followed with a domain name string specifying what domain this applies to, and then an optional string where the, the URL um, must contain that string to qualify. And the, the plus means that, that this is an allowed domain. That is, we're going to allow IE to fetch content from there when this is being fetched in a third-party context. So when your web browser is going to some site, if, if it's making, if, if the, the page you load then makes references to other domains, they're checked against this list. So if, it, if, if that domain name occurs on a line that has a plus D on it, it's allowed. If it's a minus D, then it's not allowed. And the after the domain, also for the minus D, can be a string which, if there, must be present to, for that line to qualify. And then you can also just have a minus sign by itself without a D, in which case the string that follows the minus sign, if that appears anywhere in the URL, then it matches and the minus means disallow. And an asterisk can be a wild character that can match any number of characters which occurs in the string at that point. So, so this is a very, a very simple and a very powerful syntax for qualifying and disqualifying fetches to third-party sites. In the case of having, oh, and, and in, in the case of, you, you could have many lines which can be mixed with pluses and minuses. The, the semantics of that is that all of the allow lines are looked at first. And anything that qualifies for allow 
anything that matches any of the allow lines qualifies for allow. Then the disallow lines are looked at, and anything that matches them is any of those queries are thrown out. They're just dropped. And then queries that don't match anything are allowed. So it's explicit allow, then explicit disallow, and then implicit allow is the sequence of processing. Now, in the, in the UI, in IE9, they provide already a bunch of sites that are producing mature um, tracking protection lists. And, you know, there are familiar names. There's the Adblock Plus people who have, I think, is it Everlist? It's a, it's a name I know because I've, I've got on my ad blocker on Firefox. I subscribe to, to that list. And so it, it automatically provides updates for me. Um, but here's the problem. I mean, so all that's good news. I looked at some of these, these TPLs that are available, and some of them are horrifying because they, I see a real problem with false positives. Um, the domain-based blocking is fine because, you know, if you block doubleclick.net, it's doubleclick.net. And, and the domain has to match in order for that rule, that block rule, to apply. But that, that freewheeling string blocking scares me. For example, in... Oh, in, in the easy list, uh, the easy list from Adblock Plus, they have a block on the string dot com slash ad hyphen. Now that means because it's not a domain name block, it's just dot com. That means that any resource on any domain, any dot com domain, that happens to begin with, with backslash ad hyphen, even if it's not a domain, I mean, even if it's not an ad, gets blocked. I mean, your browser won't see it. Um, or ad dot, or ad slash, or ad underscore, and this goes on. So uh, it's, it's a little worrisome that, that this thing could false positive. Um, I'm assuming, and I don't believe that I read carefully or, or saw this specifically, that, that it that is absolutely only applies for third parties. It has to be that this only applies for third parties or sites would be in danger of blocking themselves. So that's some benefit. Um, but I'm, I'm a little concerned about this being a false positive. And then the, the second problem is that this opens us up to the traditional cat and mouse game. All the, if the advertisers know that starting their ads with AD dash is going to make them not show up. <laughs> They're not going to do it. They'll just change it yeah. to BD or AX <laughs> or whatever. So basically kind these... It's a goofy system to be honest. It, it is. It is. It, it unfortunately... Again, it puts us immediately in this cat and mouse problem where now here's these lists that Microsoft makes available through the UI, which you can add. And, I mean, they're initially useful, 
except that they're also a template for the for the advertisers to use for how not to name their ads in order for them to get yeah. around it. Now, yeah, here's how. <laughs> by the way, in case you're interested in getting around this, here's how. Yeah, if yeah. you name your ads any of these things, then we're not going to display them. So let's not name them that. Do they think that advertisers will opt in as a goodwill gesture? I don't know what they're thinking. I, I mean, either. this is this is is what Microsoft has come up with as their solution, mm. and it's another one of those. Well, okay, it's better than nothing, but it seems to me that it's easy to get around because here's the template for for how you do it. Now, the good news is they are also supporting the do not track header, which if we can just please get some legislation then this is the this is the perfect solution for our for our problem they've submitted this to the w3c mozilla has submitted this and amazingly they're compatible oh that's good the, oh, that's yes good. we do not have yet another format for a do not track header it is dnt colon space one and the way the way ie9 works if you enable any tracking protection list if you have any tracking protection then this header is included with every query it makes that's just what we would want and that's the same as under uh, firefox okay. 4 um, in the firefox 4 ui you're able to say you know tell sites i do not want to be tracked and you can turn that on and then Firefox will add the DNT colon space one header to all its queries. Now we just have to get Chrome to do that and we're set. Yes, I wish Google hadn't gone off in this other weird direction with their persistent lists or whatever that yeah. was we talked about a couple weeks ago. It's so, so, so the good news is I think, you know, Google will probably do it because it, with, with Firefox and IE9 both doing it, I mean, and it, again, we, everyone says, oh yeah, well, you know, People can simply ignore it if they want to. It's like, well, yes, they can, but and, and that's a problem. But if we get legislation that backs it up, then we're starting to move forward correctly. And I'll mention that there is a there's a user like a personal TPL tracking protection list that you can enable and leave blank if you don't actually want any tracking protection lists, but you do want the do not track header to be added in IE9. So we have that. And, and that's a good thing. Um, in terms of malware protection, we IE9 hasn't really advanced that any further. Um, they've added something called, uh, you know, if they, they still support DEP, the data execution pro uh, protection or prevention uh, with, a not, with a don't execute bit in on, for processors that ex support it and now pretty much all contemporary processors do. And we had that in 8, and we have that also in IE9. They do support address space layout randomization, uh, as IE9 had. That's also there in, in 9. And safe structured exception handling to, uh, to handle structured exceptions. There were some exploits of that. That is, the bad guys figured out how to actually use structured exception handling, which is essentially it's a way for a programmer to say, if in the following block of code anything bad happens, come here so I can handle it rather than just die. 
The problem is the bad guys figured out, hey, we can have, we can use, we can, we, we can subvert structured exception handling so that when we do have a buffer overflow, it'll come to us rather than, than, you know, killing the application. So naturally they figured out how to commandeer that technology. The good news is that IE9 has enhanced that. They now have something called SEHOP. You know, carried away with their acronym. SHEOP. <laughs> SHEOP. Well, thank goodness. This is safe Exception Handling Overwrite Protection. Holy SHEOP. Yep, yep. Which validates the validity of the structured exception handling chain mm. before dispatching exceptions to it. So it makes sure that the bad guys haven't overwritten the the structured exception handling before it's being used. And significantly, that's being implemented on a per process basis, not just on a per DLL. These other things like DEP and, and ASLR, remember that DLLs had to be recompiled specifically to enable that. And so, some, and we've even seen some exploits which took advantage of the fact that a couple DLLs in, in earlier versions of IE still hadn't been recompiled. And so they were loading into known locations. They were not using ASLR for themselves. And that's all it took for the bad guys to take advantage of that. Boy. So, and then finally, IE9 has been compiled under Microsoft's latest state-of-the-art C++ compiler, which, which and IE8 was not. IE9 was, and it adds support for something called stack buffer overrun detection, which is something built in at the compiler level, which should make IE9 more robust against those kinds of exploits. Now, the thing that impresses me the most is for the common user is something new in IE9 called smart screen application reputation. What we're That's all used SAP <laughs> or uh, SAR SARP SARP SAR Smart Screen Application Reputation. We're Sapper. all used. We'll call it Sapper. <laughs> okay, we yeah. will. Yes, we will. Um, we're all <laughs> we're all <laughs> used to seeing the warnings whenever we download anything these days, saying this has been downloaded from the internet. Therefore, it's potentially hazardous. Are you sure you want to proceed? Well, what do we do? We all say yes. We know we just downloaded something right. from the internet and, and we want it or we wouldn't have downloaded it. So, yes. Of course we want that. IE9 doesn't do that. And what, what does which, it do? Which, which is fantastic, actually. Um, IE9, I'm going to quote from their explanation. Um, based on real-world data... We estimate that this new warning, which they have, this smart screen application reputation warning, will be seen only two or three times per year. Wow. But if For you most, see it, then pay attention. Exactly. Yeah. That's the point. Exactly. This is training people. Instead of training people to ignore it, mm -hmm. this is, I mean, and this is sort of what we saw with you know, the evolution of Vista, for, I'm sorry, UAC. Yeah, of yeah. Vista into uh, Windows 7, exactly, right. with, with, with UAC. It start, it, you know, it's in your face much less often, so it's like, oh, okay, maybe I ought to 
read this. So they're saying for most consumers, compared to today when there is a warning for every software download, (laughs) the key, I'm still reading, the key challenge with malware on the internet is that attacks are fast moving and quick to change. The importance of application reputation is as an early warning system. There is latency between the outbreak of an attack and when it is detected and proactively blocked. Consumers today are unprotected during that time. Think of this new warning as stranger danger. It's, um, it's an early warning system for undetected malware. No antivirus or protection technology is perfect. It takes time to identify and block malicious sites and applications. Mm-hmm. Blocking after, detect- after detection is still an important strategy, but there remains a gap between the start of an attack and when it is detected and blocked. IE9 smart screen application reputation fills that gap. And it does it as follows. When you download a program in IE9, a file identifier and the publisher of the application, if it's digitally signed, are sent in real time to a new application reputation service in the cloud. Oh, interesting. Wow. If the, yes. If the program has an established reputation, there is no warning. If the file is downloaded from a reported malicious site, IE9 blocks the download just like IE8 does. However, if the file does not have an established reputation, IE lets you know in the notification bar and the download manager, enabling you to make an informed trust decision. And they give an example of a file called 06-FHU-ICB.exe, and it says, is not commonly downloaded and could harm your computer. So they affirmatively acknowledge um, files to be downloaded that have a good reputation, a known reputation. They affirmatively block known dangerous files. And then during that, until a file has established a reputation, only then will you get a notification saying, we don't know about this. It's not commonly downloaded, so it could harm your computer. I think this is a huge win for the, 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 the common casual user. And this is the kind of thing that Microsoft can do, you know, invest in this kind of a large infrastructure, um, which, uh, and, and like ecosystem for a major feature that, that it's really hard to, to compete with. I, I salute them. I think this is, a, this is a tremendous feature. I think it's going to benefit a lot of users. Of course, we got to hope they keep this uh, database up today, but I'm sure they will. You know, Google does something similar. I mean, they they let you know if it's a known site with some problems when you search. Well, and I would imagine it's happening on the fly and automatically. No doubt, it ties into you know the MSRT technology to their own virus stuff. Things you download. I mean, every time you download, this sends you. It sends notification to the cloud. So we also need to be. You know, once upon a time, we would immediately twitch about this from a privacy standpoint. It does mean that your downloads are trackable, which, you know, needs to be remembered. 
Um, you know, who, um, I would imagine Microsoft has, has addressed it by obscuring this, but it does mean that, that you know, files with a reputation are being checked. So your... It doesn't mean to be your necessarily your download. It could be that it, uh, in the process of indexing pages. I mean, I think that's what Google does. If they see malware, they add it to a database. Uh, well, but it means Microsoft you, would have to download everything, right? This is you clicking on a link does send that act... Right. identifying the file right. you're trying to okay. download into the cloud. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it, it does mean that you can be tracked. The, the flip side is, for the common user, um, you're, you know, you're not having to be warned for files that have a good reputation. Right. Uh, that Am seems I, sensible. As long as they don't miss... Well, I mean, it can give you a false sense of confidence as well, right? Um, if, if there's no reputation established, then, then you get the warning. So uh -huh. it's only when, yes. Okay. So it's only when it when a file's been downloaded a lot and then like no alarm bells have gone off, no antivirus has been fired, nothing bad has happened, then the cloud says, eh, looks like we're gonna trust this. Oh, and it also knows where it's coming from. For example, I sign, I authenticode sign my Windows apps and they're being downloaded from GRC. So I've already established a reputation for myself. Mm, okay. So when I come out with a new piece of freeware, you know, Microsoft already knows, oh, GRC, yeah, he's a good guy. So the default is uh, to no reputation. For a brand Correct. new file, no reputation. Correct. Yeah. And then you're just, then, and, and that's the thing that they, Microsoft believes people will only see a couple times a year. I don't because, know about that. Aren't there a lot of, I mean... I don't know about that. I guess it depends. Well, on... but 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 you know, consider all the people who download Firefox in Windows. Right. You know, every they're single gonna, time they're going to see that, of course. Right, right. right. But uh, I mean, there's some sites that offer new files all the time. I guess if the site is a, so, you're saying if the site has a, a reputation, it'll be okay. Correct. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, we'll see how it works. Yeah, and then the last thing I had in my notes is the user agent header has been in IE9 dramatically cleaned up. Remember how it used to be loaded? a lot of stuff. Oh my God, Leo! <laughs> Remember all every version of .NET that you'd ever run across in your lifetime, and then other things. For, I've got this Flash. I've got that. I mean, it it, it become increasingly long, and it was becoming a tracking problem, right? Because your browser, it was it was one of the things that the Panopticlick site glommed onto and said, "Oh, look at how unique this is! Mm -hmm. you know, who has who else has exactly this combination of versions of things? Because it all all that version crap in there, that's all gone. It now says Mozilla slash 5.0. They bumped it up from four to five because they are so standards compliant that they figured." It was time, and they deserved it, and I agree. Then open parens, it says compatible, as it always has. And then MSIE 9.0, because they are. And Windows NT 6.1, weaning 7, but, you know, there's a... <laughs> because it really is Vista with, you know, some different candy coating. Uh, so Windows NT 6.1, and then Trident slash 5.0. Trident is their layout engine, and it used to be 4 and they've bumped that up to five for the, their their latest standards compliant. Close parens, and that's it. <laughs> Nothing else. That just shows you how bad it was if that's cleaned up. <laughs> but all of that information is necessary for a web page to know because it's telling you the web page how they're going to be rendering. 
Oh, and I forgot to mention also that the do not track header does have an appearance in the document object module, meaning that, that script running on the page can detect whether the, the do not track header is being used. So that allows scripts to be aware of whether the user is requesting no, no tracking so that sites could be preemptive if they said, hey, you know, you're blocking uh, resources that, you know, help pay our bills. We need you to please allow that for us. Mm, interesting. So that, mm. that exists there too. So overall, I'm impressed with it. It, is, it has caught up from a, largely caught up from a performance standpoint. It is, frankly, it's the standards leader at this point, and then these are these standards are not easy to pass. I mean, if you if you've got something like, um, you know, Firefox four, um, that is you know typically state of the art w w w with uh, following standards, still failing you know three hundred tests of of ECMAScript five. Um, although it's three hundred out of ten thousand four hundred fifty six, and I looked I looked through them, and they're not horrible. You know game changer things and chrome failing 497 of them almost 500 but still ie9 only fails 17 hmm. very impressive so uh very standards compliant we'll see how the tracking protection lists fare a little bit of improvement in in uh in their security model their layered security model and um and some nice you know user side improvements with the so-called smart screen application reputation for things that you download. Overall, I'm I'm impressed. I mean, I'm staying with Firefox. I was going to say, uh, what, what you're going to switch? I love all the goodies. No, I'm, no. I'm not going back. Yeah. Um, and, and I can't use IE9 because I'm on XP. Oh, still. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I just love Chrome so much. I probably won't. But it's nice to know that you can if it's safe. And remember, if you're using Windows, you're using IE9 whether you like it or not. Because Windows uses IE so often to render things, and many applications do as well. So you don't get the choice in, many, in, a, in a number of situations. Yeah. Steve Gibson is at GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. That's where Spinrite lives, the world's finest hard drive and maintenance utility. You've got to have a copy if you've got hard drives. Go there to buy it. You can also get lots of free things at GRC.com, including free copies of this podcast in 16 or 64 kilobit form. Complete show notes, and he even gets transcriptions done so you can read along as you listen. GRC.com. We've got the video on our site, twit.tv slash SN. In fact, if you want to watch live, we do this show live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific. That's 2 p.m. Eastern time at live.twit.tv, and you're invited to stop by, say hi. Coming up uh, in just a little bit this week in Google, and then uh, we're going to interview Bob Heil, the microphone guy, who makes oh, the mics cool. that you and I use. Fantastic. On triangulation. Yeah, Bob's in town, so we thought that'd be fun. He's got some great rock and roll stories. That's coming up at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Leo. Security Now. Security Now.